So, um, some of the sermons I preach here, I preach out of just a, a, a knowledge of God's Word. Uh, thanks to you, I have the, the privilege of spending time in God's Word and studying it and preparing a message. And I go, yep, this is what God's Word says. I'm, I'm sharing that with you. And some sermons are like that. Some of the sermons I preach here are, are preached out of a spiritual strength. There are certain areas in my life, in my walk with Jesus, that I've gone through and, and grown through and can share out of my growth. This will not be one of either of those sermons. There are some sermons that I preach out of weakness that uh, I still struggle with, and there are areas that uh, I preach to myself, and hopefully uh, you can listen a lot, but this is just for me, really. But if it helps you too, that'd be great. And it, it, the question, the, te- the topic, arises out of the gospel reading text. In the text, we, we find Jesus and his disciples, they're in the upper room, and they're celebrating the Passover meal together, and Jesus has just finished washing all their feet. He's done this humiliating act of service, an incredible act of devotion and love to all of them, including Judas. And it does not sway him one bit. Jesus uh, tells his disciples that one of them will betray him. And he indicates to all of them that the crucifixion does not take Jesus by surprise. He is in charge of, of everything. And while Judas, what Judas does is evil, it's not surprising. It reminds me a lot of, of Joseph. Joseph has his brothers, his brothers, they sell him into slavery. This will make things rough at the family reunion. And years later down the road, Joseph meets his brothers and he says to them, what you meant for evil, God used for good. And this is what's taking place with Jesus. What Judas meant for evil, God uses. And Jesus announces this upcoming betrayal so that after his resurrection, the disciples are assured of his authority even in the midst of his crucifixion. In the text, there is an an odd line. It says that that John leans into Jesus and asks him the question, which one of it is it going to be? And it's odd if you picture the Last Supper like like this. i got to get that next slide there. What happened to the next slide? It didn't get saved. That's what happened to it. Never mind. And we picture the Last Supper, right? The Vinci's portrait of the Last Supper. They're all sitting on chairs, right? And there's a big, tall table. And that's a great picture. It's a beautiful picture. But it's not how it took place. Most likely, at a large meal like that, you'd have a, the tables would be in a U shape, with the host of the meal at the, the bottom of the U, right? And you have uh, low-lying tables. The tables would maybe be about this tall. That's it. And you would recline to eat. So when they ate, it looked like this. Right? They lay on the floor, balance on their left elbow, and eat food with the right hand. And that's how you would eat. You know, always have your feet away from the table because even in Middle Eastern culture today, it's rude to point the, body, the soles of your feet at someone else. So if you go to the Middle East today... Don't ever sit like this. It's very, very rude. Don't do it, right? And so they would lay down like this and eat. 
And while they're eating, John leans back into Jesus, because he's laying right next to him, on these couches, cushions rather, and says, who's it going to be? Jesus is the host of the meal. He takes some bread, and he dips it in some olive oil, and he gives it to Judas. Again, a huge sign of respect and love and fellowship. Because in a Middle Eastern culture, if you have a meal with someone, you are saying to this, that person, you and I, we are friends. And if the host of that meal serves you personally, that host is saying, you and I are really close friends. And this is what Jesus does. It's one last attempt to save Judas. And Judas will not have it. And so Jesus tells him to leave. What you're going to do, do it now and do it quickly. And it brings up this question. And I get this question a lot. Because John doesn't finish the story with Judas, but Matthew, the first gospel writer, he does. And Matthew lets us know that Jesus, after Jesus is arrested, Judas is filled with remorse and regret, and he takes those 30 pieces of silver he was paid to betray his Savior, and he throws them in the temple. And then he goes and he hangs himself. And so the question I often get is this. Is Judas in heaven? It's a great question. It's a great question because it goes to the heart of the gospel. Can Jesus, will Jesus, forgive anyone of anything? And that's why it's such a great question. What if, what if Judas had just waited a few more days like Peter did? What if Jesus had the opportunity to restore Peter and Judas together? Wouldn't that have been phenomenal? Absolutely phenomenal. Judas's challenge. His challenge is that he can't forgive himself. And so he refuses to believe that Jesus would ever forgive him. And lots of people struggle in this area. Lots of people struggle in the area of forgiveness. And they wonder if God could could ever forgive them. A lot of times people struggle in this area, in in an area I call false guilt. False guilt is when you feel bad about something that isn't a sin. It's not a sin. It may be a failure, a mistake, an an accident, a shortcoming. It may be all those things. It may be something that you haven't done, but something that someone has done to you. And you're still carrying the shame and burden of it. It's false guilt. It's a feeling of guilt 
but it's not because of any sin that you've done. And a lot of people struggle with that. It's a student who, who gets a B, and it's horrible because they can't get a B. And they struggle with that. It's the person who, who just had perhaps a parent or someone else in authority who just had such high expectations. And the person is constantly trying to live up to those expectations 40, 50, 60, 70 years later. It's the person who just has struggled in life with circumstances beyond their control and they look at their life and it isn't as they imagined it would be and they just feel bad about it. And when that happens, there's an inner monologue that takes place. It's an inner monologue that tries to feed your sense of worth and you never get there. And the inner monologue, you have words in your head that go something like, gosh, you're worthless. You're hopeless. Why are you even here? You're a failure. You can't do anything right. Some of you here, if you were to speak your inner monologue out loud, it really would be verbal abuse. Because it's that bad. And you have that sense of false guilt. So I want to talk about releasing false guilt. And there's three parts of releasing false guilt. And the first part is this. It's really important. It's obvious, but it's really important. Here it goes. You are not God. I know. You walked in wondering about that? But I'm here to reassure you, you're not God. But we often act as if we are. Or we act as if that inner monologue in our head is God. My friends, it has no right. It has no right, it has no authority to speak judgment over you. It has no right. So wherever that voice is coming from, if it's coming from a parental figure way back, if it's coming from some other figure in authority, if it's coming from your own self and this need to prove yourself and your self-worth, wherever it might be coming from, it has no right. It has no authority to judge you as worthless or hopeless. Because you, my friends, are not God. There is one person who do, does have that right. We call that person God. And God calls you this. <coughs> friend. <laughs> beloved. Child. When God sees you, when God considers you, when God evaluates your worth in this world, those are the words that God uses. Because worth is not determined on what you have or have not done, on what you can or cannot do, but rather worth is de determined by relationship. My friends, Jesus Christ died and rose for you. 
and he calls you friend. That's who you are. You are a beloved child of God, redeemed by a gracious Savior. And if you have that inner monologue going on in your head, it is so hard to remember it. It's a process that has to be repeated over and over again. I'm not God. Where's this authority coming from? It's not from God. Because God's authority determines this. I am His. And I have worth. And so some of you, I want to invite you to just take a deep breath and kick out that inner monologue from wherever it's come from. Whether it's shame from the past or condemnation from the past, it has no authority over you. There's another type of guilt. It's, a, it's that times where we, we feel guilty and, and we actually need to. <laughs> we've, we've said something or we've done something and we're like, oh, that was bad. That was bad. And there are psychologists in the world today and they will fight against that, that false sense of guilt by saying there is no such thing as guilt. If you feel guilty, it's a wrong feeling. You're not supposed to feel that way. And they're doing that because of that false sense of guilt, which is, you know, helpful. But when it's true guilt, it's not helpful. And here's why we know why it's not helpful. Because if someone does something to you, you want them to feel guilty, right? <laughs> so there is guilt. It, it does exist. And if you feel guilt for something you've actually done and broken the Ten Commandments and sinned, it's actually a gift from God. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's God's Holy Spirit speaking into your life and saying, turn around, turn around. It's that internal GPS. You know, when you make the wrong turn, your GPS says, make a U-turn now, right? <laughs> That's God's Holy Spirit. And this is how you know that you're in a spiritual battle. This is how you know it. Satan. In Hebrew, his name means the, the accuser, the one who accuses. And Satan will make you feel bad for things you're not responsible for, the sin done to you, or for things that aren't sins, mistakes, accidents, unrealistic expectations. That's how Satan works. But he'll make you blind to your actual sin. Because the truth is, we often don't feel guilt for our sin. How many of you confessed your sin of pride at church this Sunday because you were very prideful this week? You were very prideful this week. I'll just let you know. Because there were times you're reading all that stuff on Facebook and you're like, moron, 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 right? You're like, I'm smarter than all my friends on Facebook. They're all morons, right? Yeah, I can't wait for this election to be over, dear God. Come, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Man. How many of you were broken this week because there was someone in your life that you did not share Jesus with? Yeah, okay, thanks, Cheryl. <laughs> yeah. 
It's all the time. God prevents, gives these opportunities into our lives. We're like, no, because we have pride or fear of man issues. We're like, I'm not going to say anything because that person might think I'm funny or goofy or weird. I'm just going to say anything because I'm scared. It's gossip, lack of generosity. And some of you, you're carrying sins from the past. Something you did or said years ago. And you're still carrying the guilt of it. So here's five steps. Five steps to forgiving yourself. The first is this. Confess your sin. And confess to God as we do in worship. Confess to a, to a pastor. I'm here for you. This is what I do. My office is Vegas. But said Vegas stays in Vegas. Okay? <coughs> confess to a, a, a one good friend, brother, sister in Christ. If it's possible, step number two, if it's possible, confess to the person that you sinned against. And if possible, make rest appropriate restitution. So if you stole someone from someone, pay it back and pay with some interest. If you said uh, some gossip about someone in a certain group, you go back to that group and you say, you know what, I spoke ill of this person. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. Here are some things that I like that are great about this person. You make restitution as appropriate. And number three is this. Receive God's forgiveness. Receive it. You are forgiven even if you don't feel forgiven. That's a great thing about the Christian faith and the Lutheran denomination in particular. It's not about what you feel. It's about what God's done and his promises. Even if you don't feel that way. He is God. His promises are sure and certain. The fourth is this. Receive the Lord's Supper. We share the Lord's Supper so that you might know God's forgiveness in a different way. And teachers all the time talk about teaching in different ways for different kids. right? So some kids are auditory learners. They learn by hearing it. And some kids are visual learners. They learn by seeing it. And some kids are tactile learners. They learn by touching it. And God shares his forgiveness in different ways. It's spoken as a servant to the word. You are forgiven. It's a spoken. It's auditory. But it's also tactile. And that's what the Lord's Supper is all about. Taste and see. God's forgiveness for you. <laughs> Let go of the guilt God has. And taste and see God's forgiveness for you. And number five, here's the most important step. Repeat as needed. <laughs> Receiving God's grace apart. Repeat as needed. And Martin Luther, when he wrote the 95 Theses that kicked off the Reformation, the first thesis was this. The life of a Christian is a life of repentance. And so you repeat as needed. Because that guilt that exists 
after you've confessed your sin and received God's forgiveness from God's perspective, it doesn't exist. It's gone. He says in his word, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far our sin is removed from us. And so, for today, my prayer is this, that you might know the grace of God. That it might cover over the shame of the past are those expectations that you try so hard to live up to and never, ever do because no one ever, ever could. And know God's love and his grace and his forgiveness for you. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, Lord, we pray that by your, your power, we might know your authority in our lives. That we might know it in such a way, Lord, that we allow you to kick out other authorities we've placed in our lives, Lord. We've placed other people. And then we've put them in the position of God. So we make what they say as authority. Sometimes, Lord, we do it ourselves, Lord. We speak horrible things to ourselves. Lord Jesus, we are not God, but you are. We receive your authority in our lives. We receive your word in our lives. That we are, as you've called us to be, friend, child, beloved. And Lord God, for those times, and there are many, many more than we care to admit or have even felt. Those times in our lives, Lord, where we have gone against your commandments, we've broken your word, we have sinned. Lord Jesus, we confess our sin to you. And thank you that you are faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord Jesus, we receive your authority. And because of your love, we receive your grace. Lord, we ask that by your power and through your Holy Spirit, you might send us out from this worship service with no baggage, with no burden, with no fear. And Lord, in that spirit and hope and joy, may we live fully as your people. Amen. May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, may guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus our Lord for life everlasting. Amen? Amen. Stand and praise your God here.